that makes me so angry is rich people can go buy bottled water, you know. This is what we feed to our people, and, and the bottling companies get the good stuff for nothing. How's that? All right. They don't want this shit. They don't want the shallow stuff. It's only just recently that Antarctica has been included in our predictions of sea level rise. The evidence we're getting is that we have severely underestimated the contribution of the Antarctic ice sheet to future sea level rise. Think about first, what is litigation about these climate change hazards all about? And what's it going to look like? And it's, of course, it's going to be basics. Someone's going to suffer some damage and they're going to look around for someone to blame. I'm Teresa Cowie and this is Water. A series about Aotearoa's water and some of the researchers who are dedicating their lives to understanding and protecting it. I'll find out what drives them and how they cope with researching the difficult, sometimes unpopular questions as they spend their days figuring out the possibilities for what can at times seem like a near apocalyptic future for our planet and its life force, water. In this podcast, I'm catching up with Professor Tim Naish from Victoria University of Wellington's Antarctic Research Centre to find out about charting sea level rise and how he's using his research to raise the level of urgency around doing something about it. What shocked me is the feeling I got as I left Christchurch in the middle of summer and landed at McMurdo Station on the sea ice. Um, and it was cold. They opened those back doors to let all the cargo out and it was cold. I mean, you get cold in New Zealand, but this was a dry, biting cold that you could feel in your lungs that was burning. And there's just that whole sense of awe. This is, we've gone to another planet almost. We've gone to um, a place that is vast, white and black with a blue sky doesn't smell, very quiet, no colour, and you can't really judge distance. So my immediate sense was one of sensory deprivation of, <laughs> oh, um, get me to Scott Base as quick as you can. Antarctica, almost completely covered by a vast ice sheet. It holds about 90% of the Earth's fresh water. It's the world's driest, windiest, coldest and iciest continent. If all of its ice melted, sea level would rise by 70 metres. It's melting now, and it's speeding up. The ice shelves, actually, they don't just melt, they explode, they disintegrate. So we've seen ice shelves the size of um, the Canterbury region disappear in two months, completely disintegrate, and then what happens? Because they're no longer holding back the ice on land, the ice on land flows into the ocean ten times faster. I'm a paleoclimate scientist. I often refer to myself as a paleoclimatologist, which I guess 
is a jack of all trades in some respects. Um, but what I'm really interested in is using the geologic record to reconstruct past sea level change. So this is global sea level change. And also to understand how the ice sheets have changed which have driven that global sea level change. And the reason we do this is to better understand um, what we might be in for in the future with climate change. So the world is warming, it's been warm in the past, and we go back to the past, to those warm periods, to get a better understanding of how the ice sheets may have responded and melted, and what that means for sea level rise around the world. Informing everyone from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change to local councils on what to expect and how to deal with it. So the work that we do here um, has become increasingly relevant over the last 20 years really, and particularly over the last 10 years. I have to say at the Antarctic Research Centre we all started off just with this desire to discover and understand how the world works. And then of course with the changes we've seen with with global warming and the way the glaciers and the ice sheets are responding and sea level is already beginning to rise, the sort of research we do has become quite relevant and you know we've had a lot of interest and we as scientists have become very concerned about what we've learned as well. So we do this work for the public, we do this work for decision makers, we do this work um, for the international science community so they can put together um, assessment reports. So many of our team are involved in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which produces the, the state of the climate reports every few years, and that's the basis for action on climate, the Paris Agreement, Kyoto, and, and, and those sort of things. So our work has a wide group of audiences from the world's leading scientific journals so the science community, right through to the end users. So some of the work we're doing is working with regional councils, local authorities. We're working with Greater Wellington Regional Council, Otago Regional Council, on sea level rise, what to expect, and then how to deal with it. What do you sort of think when you look back at, you know, maybe you as you, when you've just finished high school and you're leafing through the university prospectus trying to decide what to do with your life, and now the importance of sea level rise, it must blow your mind. You know, when I look back, I don't think I had a, a, a clear plan. Things just evolved. But I do know that I love the outdoors. I love tramping. I love climbing. I love mountain biking, all that sort of stuff. And I was really interested in, in the world and how it works from a physical, environmental point of view. So I, th I wanted to do science. And I did science maybe because my father was a scientist as well. But earth science is really piqued my interest, really grabbed me, and one thing led to another, and I, before I knew it, I'd spent 11 years at university uh, from my bachelor's degree, my master's degree, and, and then a PhD. And I have to say, you know, at the beginning, it, it was really curiosity-driven. Like, I had opportunities to go to Antarctica early on, you know, when it, for my PhD. I did my PhD in New Zealand on a remarkable record of global sea level change, and then I got more and more interested about what's causing that sea level change. Where's that water coming from? And it became clear the Antarctic ice sheet might have had something to do with it, particularly during past warmer times. But he wasn't always walking around in a state of wonderment about the world. Despite being a decorated professor and a fellow of the Royal Society of New Zealand, early on at university, he was pretty slack. 
he favoured adventures in the outdoors, and sometimes indoors at the pub, over going to his lectures. I took it pretty close to the line in first year, I only just scraped through. And that gave me a bit of a shock. Give me an idea of what your academic record looked like. Look, I'm not going to say A minus, I'm going to be saying B minuses and Cs. Yeah. And that for me, because I'd done quite well in school C and UE, I knew I was, yeah, I was letting things get a bit loose. What made your light bulb go on then? Hmm. I mean, I think it was the field trips. You know, I think it was the geology training going... um, you know, we had a had a great course on... I, I got very interested in um, coastal processes. We used to go around all the beaches and, um, uh, you know, around the Coromandel Bay of Plenty um, and Western North Island, and, and I found that really interesting, you know, how how waves move sand. I mean, it sounds boring, doesn't it? How waves move sand and... and um, Riveting. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> riveting stuff like that. Um, but also, we had some great, great lecturers. We had some really great teachers and um, they clearly um, really understood the landscape and had spent a lot of time thinking about it and they just opened my eyes to what we can discover by going back in time and teasing the layers apart in the geologic record um, and reconstructing what the world looked like. And so... Even so, researching Antarctica and sea level rise was not at the top of his list of career choices. In fact, he was set pretty much in the opposite direction. I'm amazed when I think of this. I, um, I was dead set at the end of my masters on being in the petroleum industry. I didn't want to go on and do a PhD. I wanted to start earning some money and having an adventurous time travelling around the world, working for oil companies, using my skills as a geologist to find resources. Um, and, and like I say, you know, back then, when was that? It was, the, um, it was in the 80s. And, yep, we knew about global warming, but it wasn't a mainstream topic. And so, you know, we weren't talking about transitioning to a carbon you know, a low-carbon future where we don't use coal, oil and gas. Um, It it just wasn't really part of the conversation. So that was what I wanted to do. But it was a very tight time and they weren't employing graduates. It was very difficult. I mean, I think the the Shell Oil Company globally only took a handful, half a dozen graduates that year. Did you apply for a graduate scheme with one of the petroleum companies? Absolutely, yeah, with with BP and, and Shell didn't make it. Um. He can probably thank that rather dodgy academic record of his for helping him to dodge a future career in what's becoming a sunset industry. So would you say growing up in New Plymouth really fed into that idea that you wanted to have a flash job in the petroleum industry? Oh, for sure. Because I went to school, um, well, I went to school in the 70s and the 80s and it was boom time. It was Maui platform being built. It was Carpuni. I mean, the, the, the whole town was, um, you know, just changed over those couple of decades. And, you know, a lot of the family friends were in the industry. Their parents were working in the industry. And, yeah, to me, it seemed, it seemed exciting. That's, it, yeah, definitely. Mm. Is that kind of hard to see? I mean, things are really winding down in your hometown. Is that sort of hard to see, even though obviously you know the facts of, of what burning fossil fuels is doing? 
Yeah, it is. It is. And I think um, it's very easy for us as scientists to stand up there and say, look, there's only one thing to do. Stop putting carbon dioxide and methane in the atmosphere. That's it. That's what we've got to do. And it's very easy to say that based on the science. But it has real impacts in in people's lives and communities and, and, and in, in the regions. And it's equally the same for farmers when they're feeling perhaps, you know, they might go out of business if there's a tax on methane or the emissions trading scheme doesn't treat them the way, you know, all of this sort of stuff. So, I mean, I think it's really important we are aware that yes, the science says we must transition, but that tr transition needs to be a just one. And we hear that term, just transition. And I think, you know, obviously this has hit um, the Taranaki region hugely, the moratorium on future exploration for oil and gas. Um, not to say there still aren't many open licences that could still be used and that gas will still be part of our just transition. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's tough, but they're a really interesting community. They're quite resilient and they have a lot of natural advantages and I think you know, we're going to see these communities be able to transition in ways perhaps they hadn't thought about. Um, and you know, I know that's very high on the government's agenda is as we, we head for carbon zero we, with the new legislation that you know, we bring everyone with us. And so much of what you're doing now is about communicating the science and advocacy. So imagining yourself um, perhaps back in the 80s and 90s, mm. early in your career um, in the petroleum industry, does that help you to empathise with people who want to sometimes deny the science? Yeah, it does. It certainly gives me that perspective. And I think also having a father, dare I say it, Dad, that was in the petrochemical um, agricultural um, chemical industry, which has gone through its tough times as well, not only with genetic engineering, but with things like 245T and, and nasty chemicals that have been linked to health issues. Um, yeah, I sort of feel like I have seen both sides of the spectrum, and it's very easy to judge, but the way we were and the way we thought 20 years ago is very different from the way we think now. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally get it. And I am often find it very difficult when I'm on a stage in a town hall somewhere in, around New Zealand, maybe in the Waikato or Palmerston North, and there's a lot of farmers in there and they're getting very upset because they think the things we are discovering and are communicating are directly affecting their livelihood. I'm Teresa Cowie and you're listening to Water, a newsroom.co.nz podcast about the researchers devoting their lives to understanding and protecting it. Right now I'm finding out from Antarctic Research Centre Professor Tim Nash about predicting sea level rise as the ice cap hastens its melt and how he's using his research to raise the urgency around doing something about climate change. You know, one of the things we struggle with is the message. Should we be positive? Should we be shocking? I mean, I think the world needs to see solutions and a pathway forward. For Tim, 
now more than ever before, it's not about heading to the ice to do the science, but instead getting out to share the science with New Zealand and the world. Last December, he headed to the United Kingdom to inform the representatives of 13 nations that have it in their power to do something. Well, I've come all this way. We're in London, um, and I'm here to talk to a parliamentary assembly. So this is a conference with some politicians, parliamentarians from around the world who have an interest in Antarctica, and particularly in the governance of Antarctica, and how Antarctica might be responding to climate change. So they've invited me all the way from New Zealand to give them the good oil on the science of particularly how the ice sheets are changing and, and what that means for global sea level rise. The irony of flying across the world in a carbon emitting aeroplane to talk about the science behind climate change hasn't escaped it. Yeah, I think it's worth coming this distance. It's, it is a long way and there's a large carbon footprint with it. But the people who are going to be at this conference are, are leaders in their own countries. And if we can get the message across to them, they're the ones that can start pushing harder around action around Antarctica, around the preservation of Antarctica, but particularly around the issues associated with climate change. We're really up against it. Time is incredibly short, action needs to happen really fast, and it's gonna to have to happen from the top as well as the bottom, so we need this leadership to step up. And I think the people who are gonna be at this meeting have the potential to really, to really make a change. I would be very disappointed if I come all this way for a, you know, a bunch of old politicians to get together and just have a few glasses of wine and a few nice meals. But I'm, I'm positive, I think. I wouldn't have come here if I didn't think we could have some influence. For his presentation, he's going to simulate the flooding of London and some of the places the delegates call home. It's going to be urgent and it's going to be shocking, but so is the science. clearly shows that carbon dioxide has been very stable over the last 10,000 years, our climate has been very stable and our civilization has flourished. Then of course, at around the 1850s, we started using coal, oil and gas as a cheap form of energy and since then look what's happened to carbon dioxide. So there's been a 40% increase. We are now at 400 parts per million and we have not been there for three million years. So these are uncharted territory for us as a human civilization. Um, the IPCC also says with, a, with, with, with pretty much 100% certainty that the human influence on the climate system is clear. We've done it. We've created the warming. That's as close as you get to an incontrovertible fact in science. Now, I'm a geologist by training, and we're luckier than most climate scientists because we have time machines. We can go back in time, we can draw back into the ice, into the rock, and we can ask the question, what was the world like the last time we had 400 parts per million carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? I've been involved in a number of large international projects, drilling from ships, drilling from the ice sheet, the Andrew project, $30 million project, um, took the resources of many, many nations to achieve. And to cut a long story short, we discovered three million years ago the West Antarctic ice sheet went away. We discovered that if you leave 400 parts per million in the atmosphere of carbon dioxide, which we are, have, are doing and are on track to do, and you leave it there for decades to centuries, then you will melt 
not just the West Antarctic ice sheet, you'll melt bits of the East Antarctic ice sheet, and you will raise global sea level 20 meters. Now, we're going to commit the planet to that in the next two decades if we do not get on top of our emissions. That cannot be stopped. Does he think laying down the science made a difference? Um, I was a little bit worried that my message could be a little controversial because I really wasn't holding back. Um, I wanted to make the science very clear, because it is clear, um, that there are some big changes happening and time is really short and there are going to be some really big impacts for humanity, particularly around sea level rise. So I didn't want to sugarcoat any of that. And I think some people were quite surprised, particularly about what we can't avoid. We've done things to our planet already with climate change, with the heat that's gone into the oceans and the ice sheet that has set the train in motion and you can't slow it down. But we still have, we have very little time, but we still have time um, to prevent the worst. And I think that was a message. And I think hopefully this audience got that message. There is still time. It's not all doom and gloom. There's time to avoid the really worst impacts. And that's the message we have to get out there to the governments. For Tim, the most discouraging thing is that while the science is there, the leadership just isn't. And what really frustrates me the most is that we need leadership through this. It ain't going to happen if we just rely on individuals. We actually need leadership for the sort of change we need. And it's not happening. We need global leadership. It's just not happening. And it's not happening fast enough. I'm Teresa Cowie and that's Water with Antarctic researcher Professor Tim Nash. Check out the other two episodes on newsroom.co.nz where I talk to freshwater ecologist Dr Mike Joy about his stealth missions into the bathrooms of small town cafes and service stations to test the tap water for cancer causing nitrates. Do you want to run this one through and then let's see where the drinking water's at? Wow. Yeah, see, okay, so that's 6.42. Yeah, that's really high. And hear from law professor Catherine Irons about water, the law, and teaching her students to be prepared to protest. I teach people about protest in class because I do think basically we have to throw a spoke in the wheels of the juggernaut to slow it down if we're going to avert you know, the current courses that we're on. Um, and so, yeah, chain yourself to a gate, even if it just slows it down and gets some attention. And you'll be wanting more after that lot. There are also three documentaries in the series you can watch. You can find them at newsroom.co.nz. Water is a Magpie content creation production. Sound was put together by Andrew Dalziel at Valley Audio, with music by Mudder TK. The iceberg sounds you heard were recorded by Mark Michel as part of Joseph Michael's installation, Antarctica While You Were Sleeping. It was produced and presented by me, Teresa Cowie. 
Water was funded by Iridangi Te Motu, New Zealand On Air.